Hello and welcome to the MicroSamplify podcast, a partner to the microsampling blog from Neoterics. Listen in as we hear from key thought leaders in research science and medicine testify to the powers of microsampling in their industry. I am Krista Newber, your host for this episode of the podcast. Today, we are speaking with two thought leaders in microsampling. Dr. Neil Spooner, senior editor of the Bioanalysis Journal and founder and owner of Spooner Bioanalytical Solutions Limited, where he is an independent consultant. Previous to that, Neil spent more than 20 years working in various leadership positions at GlaxoSmithKline. Also joining us is Dr. James Rudge, the technical director at Neoterics. James also has a background in research science and lab analysis and is the co-inventor of a microsampling device called the Mitra Microsampler, which is based on VAMS technology. Hello, Dr. Spooner and Dr. Rudge, and welcome to the Microsamplify podcast from Neoterics. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Krista. Yeah, thank you. We're here to talk about the value of microsampling in healthcare and research science. And I believe the two of you have had some longstanding discussions about how to make microsampling methods better, both for patients and for lab analysis. Can you give us a brief history of your early discussions about improving microsampling technology? Certainly. Yeah. You want to go first? Yeah, I would love to, James. Thank you. Um, I guess it goes, I, I can't remember the year it all started, but um, when I was still an employee of GlaxoSmithKline, um, we were trying to figure out um, how better to support pediatric clinical trials. Um, there have been some changes in the regulations requiring um, medicines to be registered for children where appropriate and, and the reward being an, an extra six months patent life. Obviously, that, that was quite a, lucrative for the pharmaceutical industry. So we were trying to figure out ways to do that and just reading around what was going on in neonatal screening and what people like Kevin Bateman had been doing at Merck um, with dry blood spots uh, made us think about that. And um, we investigated that technology and did a lot of work um, with a lot of people that helped us move forward with that. And, and think through. And in the end, we, we made a decision at, at GSK to really move forward with that for all our preclinical and clinical programs where it was appropriate, where sensitivity worked because of the number of added advantages for um, adult sampling as well as children sampling, you know, being able to ship samples at room temperature, stability, smaller samples. There's a variety of big benefits that we the more we thought about it, the more we realized. And also um, applying smaller volume um, sampling to preclinical work suddenly became important as well. And, and so we moved forward with that, as did a lot of other companies. So it created a lot of interest uh, in the industry. But what we realized is that whilst these the tools with the dry blood spots are really good for certain applications, neonatal screening, 
certain types of therapeutic drug monitoring, the kind of numbers we needed to generate, um, there were some, some concerns over the hematocrit, which is the amount of red blood cells um, in, in a volume of blood, changes the viscosity, which changed the size of the blood spot. And the way we were working was not having to meter the volume of blood because we didn't think we could readily do that in people's homes or in the clinic. We couldn't send them electronic pipettes. Um, it would be just too complicated with the technology at that time to collect an accurate volume. So the idea was we collected an approximate volume and then got an accurate volume by a sub-punch of the dry blood spot. But it turns out the hematocrit changes the viscosity of the blood sample, which means when you take a fixed diameter punch, you actually don't know what volume of blood you're taking. Plus, there were issues with homogeneity. So while we were very excited about the benefits, we saw that, there was, you know, in order to create the level of data quality we needed for what we were doing for registering our drugs, it, it really wasn't what we needed. And that started us having some conversations. And that's where I guess the conversations came in with James. Um, I don't think either of us can clearly remember where we had it. We think it was at a BMSS uh, conference that we started chatting about this, where, you know, I was talking about the benefits of this technology, but these major drawbacks in the way that we wanted to use it. And obviously that then set James's brilliant mind going um, to start having ideas. I don't know whether you want to pick up the story from there on, James. Yeah, sure. And I, I agree. I'm, I'm, I'm finding it difficult to remember which, which uh, conference it was, but I remember distinctly having the conversation with you and you were uh, talking about all the benefits and, and, and disadvantages of, uh, of the uh, dry blood spot uh, analysis for the work that you were doing. And I remember um, sort of the thinking about the fact that my, my father had uh, diabetes and he took um, small micro samples for his blood glucose levels. And that was on a microfluidic strip. And I, w- and I thought to myself, wouldn't it be neat to, um, to basically develop something which um, has the same value pro- proposition but could be used for multiple compounds? And I said to you, what about this is an idea and I remember you saying that's a that's a neat idea why don't you go off and develop it and I think it was around your lab then sort of the following week or the week after Neil uh to 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 borrow some or to take some uh, dry blood spot paper and start to develop a few prototypes and uh, and then uh there on in we um we, we started to look at ways in which we could we could lock the volume on those on those paper prototypes and then it, it sort of moved on from there didn't it to to uh, to to um um uh, thinking about the, the the kind of lab flow as well moving from this kind of card based samplers to to pipette based samplers and uh and yeah we had some good fun in in your labs uh, back in the day 2009 i think it was now 2009 yeah and yeah. obviously integral to that was phil deniff as well who's who's now yeah. retired but without him and his lab expertise and his persistence, we'd have never got there. Um, you know, it, it needed you cutting things out on your kitchen table and, and 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 Phil having the lab skills to work with you to to get a prototype that that worked. That yeah. you know, essentially, regardless of the hematocrit, took a fixed volume of blood, even though you know what we had then wasn't a workable solution we could use in clinical trials. We've actually proven that 
we could preserve the advantages of these dried blood samples while being able to, in a really simple manner, collect a, a, an accurate volumetric amount of blood. So that was a really big breakthrough. So that's the Mitra and VAMS technology, but many labs are still using the dried blood spot or DBS cards, as you referenced, James, for their microsampling. What are the challenges or limitations with DBS technology methods, the different ones, and how do you think volumetric absorptive microsampling or VAMS technology can help overcome those limitations? I mean, I'd probably uh, like to uh, mention a paper, actually, um, uh, from Jana Kovac from the Swiss School of Tropical Medicine. I think it was published in 2018, where they were comparing um, sort of dry blood spot ametra for testing 35 children infected with, I think it was a fluke worm in Ivory Coast. And what she mentions in her introduction really um, says it all. She says, unfortunately, in, in non-controlled settings such as rural areas of the tropics and especially when working with young children in homogeneous spots of irregular shape or insufficient size can be common, giving rise to unreliable results. Furthermore, the hematocrit is well known to have an effect on the accurate quantification of analytes from DBS. So she touches on quality and also quantitation, uh, which is, uh, again, echoing what uh, Neil was saying on the previous question. Well, I, I, what I do have to say as well is that DBS for certain applications works perfectly well. You know, it's, it's well established in many workflows and works very well. It's, it's really where, um, we need maybe this higher level of data quality or a, um, a new level of simplicity in lab automation for the analysis um, and a number of other factors that brings VAMS to the fore. But I you know, just want to emphasize that the places that DBS has been used and, and is being uh, successfully used today, it's still enabling people to make good decisions and giving them the quality of the data they need to make those decisions. It's just um, the VAMS Mitra allows us to, to take that level of quality and that level of simplicity to it to another um to another level which i i think is important and why i think that has been a successful technology for so many users out there yeah no i i, I agree and i i echo your points about uh, dry, dry blood spot as well i mean it's been uh, it's been a transformative technology for example in the neonatal screening world and monitoring world and it must have saved thousands and thousands of lives since the 1960s, since that, that technology uh, was, was uh, developed by Guthrie. So, you know, we got him to thank for, for bringing, you know, the, the pioneer of microsampling back in the day and uh, still used to this day. So for those sorts of applications, it's a, it's a brilliant technology. Absolutely, James. Thinking about the environment that we're living in today, can you talk about how and why microsampling techniques and remote blood collection methods may become the top choice of most labs in a post-coronavirus world? Do you want me to start on that, James? Yeah, go ahead. So, I, I, um, 
in one sense, nothing's changed. You know, the, the advantages are the same as they were before COVID-19. That, but what's happened is um, a lot of organizations that were looking at adopting these kinds of technologies, um, the pharmaceutical industry and many other industries are, are quite conservative. You know, it's their job to develop high quality drugs that are safe and efficacious. And so changing their workflows is kind of difficult because they're concentrating on developing a drug, not necessarily on how they perform the, the clinical trials. So in a lot of organizations, there's been a lot, a lot of people who understandably find a lot of reasons not to change or to take their time and watch what's going on. Now, what's happened now is with coronavirus epidemic is the, the positive reasons haven't changed, but people are no longer wanting to leave their homes. They're not wanting to go into a clinical setting for fears of being infected or infecting someone else. People feel safe in their own homes or have been told to stay in their own homes. And, you know, we've suddenly we've seen talking to people at contract research organizations and pharmaceutical companies and people like yourselves, the, the developers of these kinds of technologies, have just seen a big uptick in interest in this kind of technology because people realize whether it's for clinical trials, whether it's for routine sampling for routine healthcare, people don't want to go into clinical settings at the moment. And maybe for a larger proportion of the population will never want to go back to those places. So if you want to be monitoring the health of those people or you want to include them on your clinical trial and maintain them on your clinical trial, we have to find an, another way of working with them and, and sampling them. I mean, obviously, blood sampling is not the only thing that goes on in the clinical trial, but it is one of the big reasons why people have to go into a clinical center. So I think what was happening anyway has kind of been accelerated. It's I see it as kind of uh, the silver lining of the very dark cloud that is the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and I'm very much seeing some of these reasons not to do this just being swept aside. And the reasons to do it are still there. And and so I think there's been a lot more interest. And, and I've certainly heard reports of uh, project teams in pharmaceutical companies who were kind of a little bit nervous of, of looking at the technology for their trial have suddenly said, OK, I, I kind of want my trial to go ahead. What can you do for us? Can you know, will this work? And we're able to give many, many examples of many groups who over the last few years have successfully used these technologies and have generated high quality data that's been put to regulators and has been accepted. So, you know, that's kind of the way I see it. I think that was answering the question. It's, it's, is there anything else you'd like to add to that, James? Um, not particularly. I think you've actually encompassed exactly uh, my, my thoughts on it. I think one point is that what it's what the virus pandemic has done is to force people to embrace new technology across the board. And one of those is teleconferencing. You know, we're having this meeting over... Yeah you know, over a teleconferencing system, um, partially because of, of, uh, of geography, but partially because um, of, of, of the situation that we've, we found ourselves in. So, you know, we were all having to change the way in which we work. Uh, the, the UK 
may not go back to where it was in terms of the way people were working. More and more people are going to work from home now. And so I think the, the idea of, the, of teletransactions, whether it's telemedicine or, or, uh, or, or the way in which people are, are, are communicating with one another, I think it's going to be a lot more virtual now. And this plays very much into, into remote sampling. People still need to receive physical samples. Absolutely, James. Couldn't agree Let's- more. Let's focus on the advantages then of patient-centric microsampling in different industries and scenarios. For example, how does Mitra or do Mitra and VAMS microsampling help the physician who is caring for patients, most of whom, as you said, may prefer to avoid in-clinic visits in the near and distant future? Yeah. I think that's a, it's an interesting one because, um, you know, to me, the, the, the clue is in the name of what we call, what we used to call microsampling, but now a lot of people are calling patient-centric sampling. And that is, you know, we need to draw blood samples for many of the tests we do with, with current technology. Um, and the traditional way was putting... Um, Traditionally, I guess, the, the analytical scientist at the centre, you know, it was all about what volume of blood, in what format, a wet sample, a frozen sample, whole blood plasma, whatever, but in a format that was amenable to the analytical scientist. And we didn't really pay attention to what the patient, the subject, the consumer thought about that. They just had to go to their doctors or, or or wherever they needed to go to to have a blood sample drawn, often in large volumes. But the thing is, the world has moved on and our analytical techniques have become more and more sensitive. And whether it's for clinical chemistry or pharmacokinetics or biomarkers, most of the analytical methods need a much smaller volume of blood now. So a lot of that large blood sample in a traditional phlebotomy tube, a vacutane or whatever, is literally being thrown away. Um, which I don't think we should be doing. It's, it's not very ethical. Um, so you know, this technology has now moved the patient to the center. And um, we've, we've had a lot of conversations um, with doctors, medical scientists, particularly at, at the uh, CPSA series of conferences. And, and they're basically saying, we would like this kind of thing. You know, we, we don't necessarily want our patients to be, be having to take time off work, time off school, to come to us to take up our precious time or a nurse's precious time to have a blood sample drawn when they can get high quality data either in a pharmacist or at home doing it themselves or assisted by someone else. As long as we can still get the same quality of data, they just say, you know, we we don't need, we, we've got other things we need to be doing to be providing healthcare. We don't need to be doing this piece. If, if what we've got is good enough, we just need to get out of the way. So we've certainly heard that message a lot from a lot of clinicians at, at the CPSA events. It came across loud and clear. Um, James, you got anything to add to that? Again, I think you've you know, encompassed uh, exactly what the sorts of things I was going to say. I think just one example, which you know, a while back we uh, in, 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 um, we uh, interviewed uh, Dr. JJ Kim 
um, uh, about his cat on me kit that is uh, now being used by the NHS uh, for his transplant patients, his pediatric transplant patients. And this was an idea that he came up with before the COVID-19 crisis. But since the COVID-19 crisis, it's become, you know, even more important because, you know, his, his, um, his patients are at risk patients to, to, to the disease or certainly to the complications of, of COVID-19 disease. And, and so to have something where, you know, he can actually still perform his blood tests, both the, the, uh, the, the drug, but also the biomarker as well, creatinine is really transformative for him. And he can, he can actually then calibrate the test specific to the patient as well, more or less, depending upon what the, what the patient needs. So it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, I think we're going to see more and more examples of this moving forwards with patient centric sampling. Like you said, Neil, you know, bringing that patient right to the uh, forefront. Yeah, and potentially being able to get um, more data or better data than we currently have. You know, we've, we've got the ability with these technologies um, because they're being moved closer to the patient of potentially being able to collect more data points on more analytes so we can more readily monitor disease or health or drugs during drug trials. Um and potentially getting more data, better quality data, in a simplified manner that is less intrusive on the patient or the subject in a clinical trial. So I think, you know, it's got all the makings of, of being a broad win um, in terms of the patient, in terms of data quality, in, t- in terms of what the doctor wants to know about their patients so that they can help them so they can monitor more things more regularly. And also I think it, um, it enables a lot of us to take maybe a bit more control of our own healthcare rather than, you know, relying on uh, doctors and healthcare providers to make all our decisions. If we're able to be involved in collecting our own samples, seeing our own data, interacting with our own data and with our healthcare providers. Now, I think that's a big democratization of, of healthcare that enables us all to take a little bit more control of what's happening with our own healthcare. Whereas I think sometimes if, with a lot of people, the way we used to do things or the way we are doing it at the moment feels more like things are being done to you rather than being done with you. And I think that's a fundamental change that is going to take a little bit of getting used to for everyone. So patient engagement is a, is a real benefit here. Moving from the physician side, continuity of care and patient engagement over to labs with this growing preference for remote blood collection, using devices that deliver smaller volumes in a dried format how do you think analytical labs will adapt their workflow? Um, for, from my perspective, um, I think it de- really depends on the microsampling device and the lab. Um, I mean, some labs r- that are you know, routinely running LCMS and ELISAs and immunoassay, you know, will have an easier job of adopting microsampling uh, workflows. Um, uh, because, you know, a lot of these are based on, for example, 96 well processing systems. Um, and I think that the, the use of 96 well processing robots will potentially increase as a result as well. 
Um, I think things are going to be difficult when when we start looking at some of the routine clinical chemistry analyzers we, where Neil earlier on mentioned about the fact that you know, people are taking, you know, <clears throat> sort of um, armfuls of blood, seven mil of blood in one tube and often several tubes because it depends upon the preservative of the blood for the test that's re- that is required. Uh, and yet, you know, the, the systems are actually only requiring small amounts of harvested plasma or blood or, or, or serum for, for those assays. But it's actually because these are uh, calibrated to use blood tubes and to use certain sort of volumes within blood tubes, although actually what they're taking is a small amount of blood. It's a, there's actually a contradictory there, I know. Or, sorry, a contradiction there, I know. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's, I think, think get, getting, um, the, the the labs to change to um to microsampling is going to be um more of a challenge um the but i think also it's an opportunity um for some of these older tests that are less specific and less sensitive to be supplanted with tests which are going to become increasingly more useful considering mm-hmm. the fact that medicine is, is is becoming more personalized we're realizing that diseases are a lot more heterogeneic and specific Drugs are going to, are, are required to treat specific subclasses of disease. And so what you need then is, is ways to be able to diagnose and then monitor those disease outcomes, uh, with the new personalized medicines, which have been designed specifically to treat not just these days the, um, the uh, symptoms of a disease, but actually now are becoming disease, disease modifiers. And so you have to understand the disease and then the, the design the, the the drugs to to modify the disease to bring back to health um and then you need the the biomarkers to test and i think that's where medicine's going and i think the clinical science is going to move towards that and ironically because of what neil said earlier about the sensitivity of new instruments such as um lcms um microsampling really plays into that absolutely and you know the, the whole change thing is always difficult because a lot of human beings don't really like change. They like things to stay the way they are. And and so in the analytical lab, um, I've seen it myself, change change can be difficult. And, and it helps if we were able to better connect the analytical lab to the patient to so that you realize the big picture that in the analytical lab, it may now be harder. You've got to change your workflow um, maybe revalidate some of your methods and, and maybe you're struggling with sensitivity. But overall, if you're providing a better clinical trial, better quality data, or you're helping the patient at home, then they're, they're big advantages. And I think it helps to point those out to the analytical scientists. And I, I think it's also interesting is, you know, you look at some of the clinical labs, um, clinical testing laboratories, and they're actually starting to sell these technologies as a sort of advantage. Um, you know, some of the, some of the big central laboratories are, are starting to embrace dried samples and are, you know, then extracting them and reformatting them in a way that is then compatible with their existing workflows. Likewise, some of the other hospital labs and things. A lot, a lot of the products that are available on the internet now for home blood testing, for health monitoring, those samples are, are sometimes they're wet blood samples, sometimes they're dry blood samples, but they're going into um, analytical laboratories in hospitals or central laboratories that are used to dealing with normal 
large volume wet blood samples. But these labs have realized if they adapt, this, you know, gives them a new angle on, on um, some new workflows and some new work to do. And, and with some of these companies, profits to be made, um, because after all, um, most places these analyses are done is a business and and that's how they're making their money and if they can find a new way that gives them an angle that they're able to sell directly to the consumer which we're starting to see then um, a lot of those labs are getting interested in that as well and and that suddenly you know the patient centricity gives a motivation but you know money gives a motivation as well i think so it's i think there's there's it's quite complicated, but we're seeing progress in a number of places for a number of different reasons. I think this next question is for James. Um, what kind of feedback have you received from patients or other end users with regard to Mitra devices for remote blood collection? Do you find that patients and study volunteers generally find Mitra easy to use at home or out in the field? On, on, by and large, yeah. Um, I mean, to quote uh, Daniela Hoffman, for example, from Swiss School of Medicine, yeah, and she's just with, with, with saying, with the use of VAMS uh, in work such as performing PK studies or therapeutic drug monitoring in low-resource regions, the whole analytical pipeline becomes more efficient and solid, and pharmacological studies that take place in mar- marginalised areas become more feasible. Then she goes on to say later on is that what I like the most about using Mitra is that it's very patient-friendly and nurse-friendly. It, it's easy and in intuitive to handle and does not scare patients away from donating their blood and I think it's quite important and that also plays into the kind of pediatric uh, fields as well you know um, having um, met um, you know uh, patients who actually use um, a Mitra uh, device um, it's an incredibly humbling thought that you know that the, the, the device which was kind of a as a result of a conversation almost over a beer at a, at a conference <laughs> sort of, you know, over 10 years ago ha, is now impacting on real life. Um, and, um, yeah, and, the, and one paper quotes um, uh, from a focus group that why haven't we got seen this before or why haven't we used this before? So, so yeah, it's uh, by and large, um, it, you know, people really appreciate you know, having this as, a, as, as an option and, uh, you know, obviously the stats are very much in the favour of finger prick versus, you know, venous samples. There's quite a bit of uh, data out there to kind of kind of show that. And, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it's been quite a quite an interesting, humbling experience talking to to patients and parents of patients. And I think that's a really good point, James, because the, the voice of the the patient when you when you hear it again as we have done regularly at the CPSA events it does it does kind of make the reasons not to do it go away it's it speaks louder than than anything you know the 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 mother of a of a sick child talking about how blood sampling causes real distress and can cause family breakups, can cause suicidal thoughts just over what we think of as something as simple as blood sampling. It's it's quite fundamental. And when you hear those stories, it really is a big leveler. And 
you know, I think we've all had uh, a little bit of hay fever causing a bit of wateriness of the eyes when we've, we've heard those kind of uh, presentations. And, and mm. it, we, we need to hear that voice more loudly, more often, I think, because it, it really does make a difference. It, it grounds you, doesn't it? It grounds you as a, as a scientist um, to, to think, you know, these, this is the reason why we get out of bed. This is the reason why we go to work and, and push, push things forwards. Um, because when you see a, a mother of a sick child give a presentation, as, as we've seen at CPSA, and she's speaking, um, and she knows the, the likelihood of that her sick child will, will be cured, but what, but, but, um, if she can, you know, highlight the particular disease that her child has, has got, and the issues associated with treatment and also clinical trials and and the collection of blood from her child and the, the problems they obviously they have with having to take blood, especially when there are collapsed veins and and veins which are tough to to, to actually puncture because of the disease. Um, you know, you, you you sit there. I've sat there in you know in um you know in those in those um those um meetings and uh thought yeah you know we really must push forwards as a as a as a scientific community absolutely james absolutely what place do remote blood collection methods using mitra devices and vams microsampling have in different phases of drug development from discovery research to clinical trials do you want me to have a go at that, James? Yeah, please do, Neil. I, I think, you know, um, when we look at discovery, um, where obviously a lot of the work is in vitro, but we're, we're doing some early um, animal models and, and studies, you know, looking at PK, PD, um, trying to understand that. And there's, there's many approaches to that small blood sampling. And because we're not necessarily shipping the samples around the world and taking them from multiple locations, I, I think some of the advantages of the dried blood sample become become less, other than if you're wanting maybe to translate your, your data throughout the whole of drug development. And maybe the same could be said of uh, uh, toxicology studies uh, using using animals. But um, and and many people are using microsampling of various different kinds in those uh, discovery preclinical and, and toxicology non-clinical studies, um, a variety of things. I always wonder whether the dried blood kind of approach is is best in those situations, other than as I say, if you want to translate it um, over to your clinical way, you're wanting to do that same approach. So that is a good argument for doing it. But for all the stages of clinical trials, um, the argument for using it is is very, very strong. I've seen a phase one study where you're in a, a single clinical unit where you you can train people, you can train the medical staff to, to collect different kinds of samples in different ways is maybe less of an advantage. But once you get to multi-site, multi-center, clinical trials, the advantages become really, really huge. I'm not saying that there aren't advantages in, in earlier phase studies, but I think the later phase ones where, you know, you're able to save money on room temperature shipping, um, 
just that extra stability if you if you demonstrate the stability in that format the home sampling the smaller sampling the sampling in remote areas the pediatrics there's just once you get to those later phases the advantages just pile up they're still there in a phase one study and they're still there in preclinical but i think the arguments are so much stronger in those late phase studies it's my belief but you know maybe maybe you have a different opinion james no i i completely agree i mean i know in the early days certainly um preclinical it was all about three r's and i think that's also um important that you know the the microsampling uh, does um you know sort of improve um welfare of, of animals you know with Absolutely. the you know, re- reduction replacement and refinement um and you're right in when it comes to phase two phase three when you know it seems ironic that you know when you've got patients who are ill and quite sometimes quite desperate to have some kind of treatment for a condition and then are in a sense having to move to to actually travel to a, a clinical center for the, the clinical trial and if that trial could be brought home and allowed to be run at home that's got to be better for the Absolutely. welfare of the, of the patient and you know we know we've discussed things like you know it also it's better for recruitment and compliance um for these new treatments but you know keeping it very patient centric it's you know if you can have that run at home why wouldn't you yeah Absolutely. so do you anticipate we're going to see some dramatic changes in the industries that we've discussed or in any other industries that utilize or can utilize microsampling technologies? I, I, I think so. You say, did certainly keeping my ear to the ground in the last few months since, since the pandemic, there, there seems to be a major uptick in, in interest. You know, a lot of contract research organizations are saying they're getting a lot of clients knocking at their door saying, can you do this? Can you help us with this? So I, I think that's starting to happen. And, and also the more, more we understand these technologies and the more, um, more people get exposed to them and understand what they are and what can be done, the more it's going to get applied to places we've not even thought about before, you know, whether it be sports science, drug testing in sport, nutrition, um, workplace drug testing, you know, many, many applications, some of which maybe that don't exist at the moment. And just people, people that are interested more in their own health, wanting to monitor their own health. I think there's a number of places that it, it will be starting to grow and, and, I think I've said this to, to James before. He'll, he'll be starting to see the technology he was involved in inventing popping up in pl- all sorts of places that he didn't know about, that he didn't realize. And people won't even know who he is anymore and the role he played in that device people are holding in their, <laughs> in their hands. And that's a good outcome. That's yeah. a fantastic outcome. It, 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 I'm- mentioned before neil that it's quite interesting that when i'm at the conferences that we're both at and and or, or perhaps individually and uh you know i walk past um two scientists having a or a group of scientists having a discussion about you know mitra and vams and it's like you know it's quite a again it's quite a humbling experience really and uh, i think everything you've, you've said neil you 
you've, you've covered it. And there's only one thing that I'm thinking is that there's potentially an opportunity for roadside testing by police as well, yeah. you know, for, for drugs and, and, and so on and so forth. So, you know, that, that might be, be helpful as well, especially if there is a, an agent which someone's taken, but then, you know, it, it gets fast metabolized or, or, or whatever. Maybe there's a, an opportunity to capture yeah, some. It. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I think, think we're, we're seeing things around the current pandemic. You know, I know from labs that, that have contacted me that maybe have um, antibody tests that are just, you know, they're wanting to do them in the home setting and um, been contacting companies such as yours to see if they can, you know, marry up their technology with your technology to enable um blood testing for um covid-19 antibodies in the home you know that's that's got to be a good thing you know mm. no one, we're seeing all these issues with yeah we, with with the virus testing and the antibody testing a bunch of people just not being able to get to the the, the testing centers and if we can bring the testing center to the people that's that's got to be good that's got to be good all around the globe where you know they may not necessarily have the the same kind of infrastructure we're used to um if these good quality samples can still be collected and we can get information to control this pandemic um it's got to be a good thing yeah i completely agree and yeah we've certainly seen uh great interest in in you know, antibody testing and also um, potential biomarkers for tracking disease as well with um, like some of the inf- information biomarkers as well. There's a, um, a big interest at the moment that we're seeing with that. So, yeah, I completely agree. Yeah. Well, thank you, Dr. Spooner and Dr. Rudge for taking the time to share your insights with us today. And thank you to our audience for listening to this episode of the Microsamplify podcast a partner to the microsampling blog from Neoterics. Thank you, everyone. Yeah, thank you. Bye-bye.